Women making waves. Susie, are you actually able to see me? Because you seem to be looking everywhere but at the camera. <laughs> I know it's a bit mm. odd, actually, that you asked me that question. I suppose after COVID, I then decided that it wasn't enough to have, just have COVID. I decided to have labyrinthitis. And, and apparently it's a thing that people that have had COVID are getting as well. Mm. So, or some people, yeah, rather. it is. Special people like you. Yeah, special people like me mm-hmm. decide that they not only want to have COVID, but they decide to have something else to consider and, and have to stay in bed for. horrible. Oh, it was. It was I mean, horrible. You were, what were you, you were all right for, what, a week yeah. less? Yeah, I think it was like about, that? yeah, it was about 10 days. And then I started getting dizzy and feeling sick and not being able to walk in a straight line. And it was quite scary. And it is linked. Apparently, it is linked. Every time I speak to other people and people in medicine, they say, yeah, there is some sort of connection between COVID and labyrinthitis. So here I am. That's awful. I know. Awful. So I have to get my son, who is six foot, and he has to walk with me. And I have to hold his arm as I walk down. <laughs> What's it like going upstairs then? It must be like being yeah. in a storm at sea. Well, I have to sort of lean on the banisters to go up. But I think mm. it will go. I know it will go. I know. And I think I've got to the stage now where I can absolutely manage it now. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's been a But bit you're scary. sort of stuck in the house then. Yeah, You've I been, can't, I can't you've drive. You've a bit of a rough time, really, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, It's not nice. I know, but in between having these conditions, I did have that moment where, you know, when you feel after you've had flu or after you've not been well, you feel invincible because you sort of think you're bouncing back. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to completely reorganise my wardrobe. Oh, and that must be a big job in your case, actually, (laughs) mustn't it? I bet you've got loads of clothes. Well, I've got loads of shoes. Oh, right. And Imelda. Yeah, Yeah. Imelda indeed. Oh, this was a challenge for me. Downsize my shoes, downsize my clothes. And now it's just wonderful. I walk into my, I don't walk in, I open up my wardrobe. (laughs) I'd love to walk into my wardrobe. But I open up my wardrobe and think, it's not cluttered. I can see what I've got. How have you sorted your clothes then? Have you done it in shades? Have you started it black at one end and gone to sort of white at the other and all the shades in between? Is that how you've um, well, actually, no, you say You, you say them? black at the beginning. I've gone white at the beginning, virgin okay. white. Wedding dress is <laughs> hanging up at the beginning. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, it's lovely. There is a really mm-hmm. good app actually as well. You download this app. And you can take pictures of your clothes so that you'll have a log on your phone. So if you want to buy new clothes and you think, oh, do I need that? Or do I have something that will go with it? And so Mm -hmm. you look on your app and you go through your clothes when you eventually take all the photos, all individually of your items. (laughs) And you can then decide if you need that piece of clothing. That's quite cool, isn't it? That sounds like a real killjoy app, to, to be fair. I'm really into it. I've been obsessed now with the wardrobe and I feel so proud of myself that I can actually find something and put it back. But for you, Linda, you've just told me that you are going into work one day a week. I was lucky to get there because, of course, we had the fuel crisis last week where I was nearly at the end of my tank. And that morning when I went into work, I went via the town where I live. The two filling stations were closed. I went round the supermarket and there was no queue and I thought, oh, God, let's give a shot. So I went in, fully open, only about three cars there. 
fully open. Every nozzle was untagged. Wow. It was all open. And I just went and straight in. Obviously, everyone else was like me. Oh, they won't have it. Straight in, filled up my car. The car in front of me, he not only filled up his car, but decided to fill up two huge containers as well, which actually I found slightly annoying. Mm. Because I just thought, well, you're just taking all the fuel, aren't you? And somebody else is going to come along eventually and they're not going to get any. But it must have been so liberating to get there and know that you were there and whizzing in and whizzing out probably within 10 minutes. I was stunned. I remember seeing something on the TV recently where they were interviewing the drivers and they interviewed one lady and said, why are you here? Well, because everyone else is here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, if you're seeking company, it's not the way to do it. Join a club. Yeah, join a club. Join a club. (laughs) Go out there. Go to a coffee morning, join the WI or something. Don't go to the filling station. It's not that much fun. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Louise Etock is joining us today. Now, you might remember Louise. She's been on Women Making Waves before. She's the front woman of Flaming June. She uh, writes the songs and she sings. She's brilliant, actually. And she just learned that she's got ADHD, Susie. Yeah, well, it's it's a brave move, isn't it, in some ways, to recognise that you probably, what Louise has suspected for a long time. And I think it's it's good. Well, she talks about how she was diagnosed, how she's actually found out. And we're speaking as well to Rebecca Champ. Now, Rebecca Champ works with people with ADHD and she's going to be telling us about ADHD because that's her area of expertise and speaking to Louise and telling her about what to expect, having been diagnosed in adulthood. Really interesting. And our other feature today is Rebecca Maddox. Now, she is a consultant and she's the mother of two and she is a very firm advocate for helping children. She has an amazing track record of excellence in raising standards for early year settings. And I'm really interested to see what she has to say about... I know, I know. I'm looking forward to chatting to Rebecca and hearing what she's got to say as well. It's always quite interesting hearing these experts and children and almost like child psychology. Even although they're not psychologists, they, they do know a lot about child psychology and getting them to do what they want. Women Making Waves. Our guest, Rebecca Maddox, is the owner of Helping Hand Early Years Consultancy, which is based in South East London. A consultant, a proud mother of two, and a firm advocate for helping children. She says she enjoys working with like-minded individuals who want the best outcome for children within their settings. Now, Rebecca has been shortlisted very recently for an award called Lockdown Hero. It's part of the Southwark Business Resilience Awards, celebrating the success, achievements and resilience of the borough's largest and vibrant business community. Hello, Rebecca. Why are early years of a child so important? Because it's the beginning of a child's life. The first few years of a child's life is crucial. It has an impact on our later life. So they say the first three to five years of a child's life, does it have a huge impact on their development, on how they become an adult? But I think it really grew on me when I was around 14. My parents had a Saturday school 
and they used to let me join in and support so I used to volunteer to do that and that's when I saw oh wow I love working with children I couldn't wait for Saturday to come so I could go and help out so I think that's when I really saw this is for me and I've not looked back since. It's really good that you found something that you want to do from a very early age there's a lot of yeah. people including myself and I talked for a lot of people that say they still don't have a clue but for you obviously you were given that opportunity and and age. you're brave enough actually to say yes I would like to do it and not the norm to say oh actually I better go into something that I ought to be in you it's want true. to do something that is really helpful because I suppose once you love it you it's half the battle isn't it yeah exactly they say if you do what you enjoy you never work a day in your life so <laughs> Absolutely true. I go by that. <laughs> <laughs> and what made you start up your own business? Because that's quite a big step, isn't it? Rather than yeah. working for someone else. Well, my dad has a saying to always be the head and not the tail. So <laughs> great saying. <laughs> sounds like your family have a lot of great sayings. <laughs> yeah, that's my dad. He's always like, do anything that you want to do, but make sure you're at the top of whatever you do. So that's probably where it stemmed from we're a family that always push ourselves and we want the best for ourselves and especially for my children as well I want to be a great role model for my children and I've been working in the early years for so long and I felt like the early years needed me like I can't just stay in one place I just thought I'm staying in this nursery and I manage it and it's going great but what about all the other nurseries what about the other childminders what about all these parents that are always asking me for support how am I going to help them if I just stay in one place and I've done a bit of freelance and was supporting some nurseries in between managing and I remember one of my inspections that I asked a nursery with the Ofsted lady said to me, you need to set up your own business. I don't know how you turn things around in five weeks. Please go and set up your own consultancy. And her name's Rebecca as well. So I don't know if it was a bit biased, but. (laughs) (laughs) So nursery providers come to you for help if they're, they're struggling maybe with things. Nurseries, childminders. After school clubs, it might not be necessarily that they're struggling. It may just be that they want to continue to raise their standards. So I may go in and do a quality improvement inspection where I'll look at, this is what you're doing. That's fantastic. But you could do this. That's going to bring you up even higher. So a lot of my clients, that is a service that they book because they're always looking to improve. Yeah. You know, before we started recording this, I was kind of yes. scribbling down things about you. And I wrote down, <laughs> she smacks of super nanny because you were talking about helping parents. And I really yeah. like I really liked that because a lot of parents do really struggle, don't they? And, and not yeah. all children our little angels no. <laughs> it's, it's so funny that you say that because people do say you're like you're like super nanny but um I think I'm a bit nicer to be honest <laughs> <laughs> yes I do think I'm a bit more friendly um yes I do find that parents do struggle and I do find a lot of it is just because they don't have that experience a lot of parents it's their first child or some parents will compare their children to other parents' children and think, oh my goodness, my child's not doing this and they should. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's what happens. And then I'll come in and say, your child is an individual and your child is going to do it when they're ready to do it. There's nothing wrong with them. Do not compare them. And then they're like, oh, okay, so it's okay. Yes, 
it's okay. So Rebecca, I want to touch on mental health and children and first time mums, because I think it's a an important part yeah. now of our world where years ago you were just made to get on with it you had to deal with your child for the first time and there was a stigma about asking for help because you had to do it now thankfully I almost feel we've got a new normal now the way bringing up children now is a far healthier way do you think because of people like you are helping younger mums parents that are lost a partner and they've had to deal with it how are you finding you're helping these people and is it very important now to stop this stigma and to ask for help I think you're completely right with all the points that's raised and I still think sometimes now parents still struggle to ask for help because they feel like if I'm asking for help it means I'm not a good parent or maybe people are going to look down at me so I think we still need to really encourage parents to say no asking for help is a good thing one thing that parents need to take on board is there's no such thing as a perfect parent we're all trying even me I'm a consultant I had all these years of experience I had to still figure things out myself when I had my children you don't know everything and not everything that's written down reflects your life or is going to help your children so there's no shame in any of that I think that there are more community initiatives and support especially on the maternity boards there's a lot of Monday walks with mums and community-led initiatives things like TV debuts about parent support and mental health there's a lot of businesses that I've also started that are just related to mental health and a lot of resources that are supporting children with that as well now so many positive affirmation cards poems activities books stories so there's so much resources around that now as well so I just think it's one of those things where everyone just has to remember that we're all human Mm. and there isn't a right or wrong way to do things Mm. so reaching out asking for support is going to help your children it's going to help you it's going to uplift you they say it takes a village to raise a child Mm -hmm. so Mm, if you think about that we need our village we Mm. need the community behind us and I think the more everyone keeps saying that it's a good thing is the more that parents will start believing that it's a good thing and continue to reach out for help. So Rebecca, tell us about your clients then <laughs> from a point of a case history and how you feel you've helped. You know, I, you know, the smallest things I think make the biggest difference. So how do they come to you? Are you um, sort of referred or do you advertise? I advertise, but a lot of my clients come from words of mouth and parents are usually quite anxious and stressed out in the beginning. And I sort of just say, it's okay, just calm down. And then they sort of relax. I think they really get worked up. I think when you don't know how to do something and you don't know how to make things okay, I think that's what stresses them out. So by the time they come off that maybe a Zoom to me, they, they email me after and say, thank you so much. Like I've been searching for help. I didn't know what to do. And you've really made me feel okay. Have you ever come across a family? I'm a demon for questions like this, but have you ever come <laughs> across a family that you just kind of thought, I don't know where to start here. I don't really know how to help you. Um, it's that bad. <laughs> I actually haven't. And do you know what's so funny about that question is, the children that are probably the 
I don't like saying they'll use the word naughty because we're not really supposed to use that word. But the children that are, you know, challenges, lovely, <laughs> the lovely ones. I. I find them, I love that. I just find, I like challenges. And that's probably another reason why I set up my business because I don't like things that are easy. I like to know, oh, this was a challenge and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn it around. From your experience so far, Rebecca, what do you think like one or two of the main areas that people find very hard in the early years that they come to you for help? Like I mean, for me, when I was having my first child, I was definitely the breastfeeding definitely the night going to bed because when you have sleep deprivation it is the worst thing ever and I don't think many people realize having a baby is for me is sleep deprivation yeah you're like a zombie yeah (laughs) out of all your the people that you see and help what are the sort of the main areas that people really need help help with I think the main one is usually potty training and their child not listening so behavior I think those are the top two I think the main thing that parents go wrong with potty training is they compare with their friends so they'll say oh this child's potty training um, or she's been potty trained my child isn't most children you need to make sure they're ready first even things like asking them if they want to use the potty some children want to go straight to the toilet so it's those little key things that you need to do to really prepare your child lots of potty training activities to let them know about what's going to happen what happens in the toilet why we use the toilet talk about your body parts teach them those things so it's just really about giving them those tools and the understanding and then it's so much easier Rebecca, where did you learn to do all of this? Have you been reading lots of books? Did you go on courses? Did, how, how did all this knowledge come to you? I think it's a mixture between education and experience. So I have an LES degree, as well as I'm always doing extra courses to make sure my knowledge is always up to date and experience. So I've worked in nurseries, after school clubs, I've worked alongside childminders, I've done private consultancy, I've launched my own business, I've I've done everything. (laughs) 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 It's always important to meet the children as well as the parents when you're working with families. Most of the time, yes. If it's something to do with potty training, you may not necessarily need to meet the child because you can get enough information from the parent about how is the child's personality can you tell me enough about them and sometimes that's enough but I do find majority of the time it is more useful because sometimes parents will describe their children one way and when you go there you're like oh you said they could do this and that and I don't think that's the case so we all have different perspectives when it comes to our children it it does remind me when you talk about potty training I remember when my second child I was trying to get him to potty train and we took him on holiday and I put the potty on top of the sink and there was a mirror there and so I read somewhere that you run all the taps oh yes get the flow going and it worked and my mother looked at me and said Susie where have you got that idea from I said I don't know but it worked and I'm going with it. <laughs> My mum no, used to that, that with me. To run water or yeah. give water or bubbles. Yeah. And it Actually, it works them. with me today. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> 
we we have all these amazing books over the years, right through to Victorian times on how to bring up your child, when to do this, when to that. And at the end of the day, we're still using them. But as you quite rightly are doing, you're sort of communicating this thought through your own personality, your own consultancy. Yes. It's an age-old thing, is it, how to bring up a child? And um, I think we stick to what has been done in history, but we are doing it in a way that is calmer and it suits us. It's not so regimented. Do you feel that way? I do find it is like that. There's so much promotion on being kind. I mean, if you look at my social media, I'm probably, you know, up there as well doing that. But I'm always like, always be kind. Hashtag be kind. Come on, let's just be gentle and we constantly promote children's feelings and their emotions, getting them to talk about that and express their emotions and talking is good. And there's so much promotion on that. So I think there is a culture of kindness and your feelings and your mental health and check in with friends, check in with your children, see how they're feeling. Are they coping? There's this help blend. There's that community. Come and have a walk and talk. So Definitely. I don't remember any of those things growing up, like a community where you go and walk with mums just for friendship. I didn't even know of that when I had my children. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, Rebecca, if you want to become a millionaire, what you should do <laughs> is focus <laughs> is focus on them um, 13 to 19 year olds. Now, therein <laughs> lies the problem. <laughs> well, actually, my daughter turns 13 tomorrow. So if there's any experts and uh-huh. teenagers, please. <laughs> I think millions of us have been asking for that for years. <laughs> And who who did you turn to when your children had problems? Because I think it's it's always different when it happens to you. And you need to be an expert with everyone else. Who did you turn to? I'm kind of assuming it might be your parents. Yes, I think with certain scenarios, I would go to my mum and my nan. My nan is, she's just so old school and always there with advice and you know Rebecca come on when you was little (laughs) this is what I did and she's got a Jamaican accent it's just lovely and they're still now they would give me like little tips especially with my daughter as she's becoming a teenager so I'm always still going to my mum and what did you do with like phones and technology and when did you let me go to the shop again and going out with her friends what age is going to be the right age and it's all of those sort of questions that I'm still asking and my mum always says to me you know so she'll give me the advice but she'll say deep down you have that mother's instinct we're talking about obviously mothers here this is a women's program obviously but it is important to recognize that there are fathers out there single fathers same-sex couples maybe i'm making a very sweeping statement here but maybe i find that men find it a little bit harder to ask for help and it's funny you said that because my brother also said that i should launch something so i am considering launching potty training but just for fathers um I have had one father come along to a workshop as well and he was quiet but 
he was taking in you know what I was saying and participating so I think it's just about making it the norm I remember we interviewed somebody a while back and they were talking about childbirth and pregnancy actually and they were running classes for the fathers only yes. which I thought was a great idea yes, yes. they didn't want to go along with a bunch of women but they were much happier to go along and kind of they might have been having a kind of nudge and joke about things but actually they were taking it all and taking it quite seriously and they do want to know I think sometimes people think oh you know let the mother do it the dad doesn't want to do it but actually the lot of fathers that I speak to they really do want to know learning about their children from a young age yeah so because there's a lot of single parents that are fathers yeah. And you never know what can happen in life. So it's good to to know these things. Very importantly, what is the future for you, Rebecca? Where where are you seeing yourself after talking to us? I want to be a millionaire. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've given you tips on that already, Rebecca. <laughs> My sister's going to get me for that. She's the singer of the family, not me. <laughs> continues to grow and I do have a few other things that I would like to launch I'm sort of keeping quiet and seeing how that goes but onwards and upwards just keep growing my business reaching more parents maybe even getting to support people internationally so things like that along the same system but just continuing to keep improving and hopefully I'll be able to expand eventually have other consultants working for me at Helping Hands so we can reach more parents and more providers. Well, I so think you're doing really it. well. I, yeah. I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a breath of fresh air. Oh, it's lovely. Lovely to hear someone so enthusiastic about Absolutely. what you do as well. Yeah. Thank really you is. so much. It's been so lovely. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Coming up next, we're going to be speaking to musician Louise Etock. We'll be chatting with Rebecca Champ all about ADHD. 105. Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business. Business, and you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfinds.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfinds, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914-567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. Cambridge 
To our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk. We're going to be talking about ADHD today, and in particular when it's diagnosed in adulthood. We're joined by Louise Etoch, who's best known for being the driving force behind the band Flaming June, and who's recently learned that she has ADHD. We're also joined by Rebecca Champ, who's an integrative contemporary clinical psychotherapist and coach and the executive director of Adapt Ability. Rebecca says her passion is to help individuals with ADHD discover how to design lives they love to live. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hiya. Thank you for having me. Now, Rebecca, can we start by finding out a little bit about you? You spent some of your high school years in Vicenza in Italy, I believe. Tell us about that. I did. As you may have noticed, Linda, I am not from around here. (laughs) My father was in the American military. And so I've spent about half of my life in Europe and half of my life in the United States. And my four years of high school, we're spent in Vicenza, Italy. Yeah, so it's given me quite an interesting experience before the age of 18. I can imagine it would and you then went on to study history and theatre in New York. Was that choice driven by your time in Italy? It's very arty there isn't it? It is very arty and in fact um, we were treated to quite a lot of fantastic experiences including uh, being able to graduate in the Teatro Olimpico which is designed by Andrea Palladio and is quite world famous in terms of the the space uh, as an indoor theatre. But no, the love of theatre came very early when I was about four. Both my parents had studied musical theatre and music education. And we had quite a musical family that was very interested in that kind of expression and communication. And so when I went to university, um, I knew, because I did know about the ADHD at the time, that I would need to be engaged in something I loved in order to be able to succeed in university. And so I really wanted to study theatre. Of course, you're about to meet Louise, who is a musician, in fact, so this should be an interesting conversation. (laughs) How did you come to the UK, Rebecca? The first time I came to the UK was actually a study abroad programme in the last semester of my university. So I spent the last four months of my four-year university degree in London, attending probably more theatre than I will ever see in the rest of my life. It was amazing. I will never forget it. It was wonderful. A friend of mine was uh, doing a work-study experience, and he introduced me to a group of his English friends, and through them, I met my husband. And so he came to meet my parents in the U.S., and we were married in the U.S., and we spent four years there. He was employed in IT, and then we discovered that His company had a space here in Cambridge at the Science Park. And so he transferred over and we've been here ever since. And I believe that you were working for the NHS in Cambridge and he was actually diagnosed with ADHD in 2007. Is that right? He was. It's a very interesting story, actually, because in my family, we came across ADHD because my brother was diagnosed at the age of nine. Now, this was back in the 1980s when they really were only looking for hyperactive boys. He really couldn't sit still in a classroom for more than about half an hour to 45 minutes at a time. 
And because it was identified in him, both myself and my mother discovered that we had it. So we grew up in a family where we understood that we needed to kind of do things a bit differently. But as I said, my father was in the military and we moved every three to four years. So we were never medicated. Medications at the time were quite limited in scope and it wasn't something that my mother was particularly keen on. So we spent quite a lot of time basically doing quite a lot of coaching with my mother before we understood what coaching was, which was to really discuss your experience, explore what was happening, reflect on what you've done and what you've not done and what you would do better, and try and implement that to the next time you were going to do things. So we talked about this quite a lot growing up and kind of incorporated it into what we were doing, but we didn't really disclose because even now people don't understand it very well, but they really didn't then. So when my husband was uh, working in IT here in Cambridge, um, about two years into that, the tech slump hit and he took voluntary redundancy and he knew that he could work as a consultant, so he began to try and do that. But while they really enjoyed his work and they thought that his work was very good, all of the admin and finances and business development and things like that started to go really wrong. Uh, and he really began to struggle. And we ended up going to the GP for anxiety and depression, none of which we'd ever had before. And as this progressed, I began to think, this is looking really familiar because my husband has a double degree in physics and electronics, right? He's not, he's not a slouch. Hmm. So at the time, I was working at Addenbrooke's Hospital, and thankfully, they had one of the only adult ADHD research clinics in the country. And I managed to get him in on a project that they were doing and get him seen, and they diagnosed him as inattentive ADHD which was very different to the hyperactive combined ADHD that you saw in my family. So I thought, fantastic, great, you've got a diagnosis, we'll be able to get some help, that'll be wonderful. And there was nothing. There was nothing in the NHS for adults. There was nothing privately. And it would take another, I think it was about 2013, when it was finally recognized as part of the diagnostic process that it continued into adulthood. So you decided to train as a coach and you launched Adventures Within. What was behind that decision? Was it literally that there was just nothing else out there and you thought, right, there's a gap in the market here. We need to learn more about this. Absolutely. I felt very strongly that, particularly because of what my husband experienced, that there was not a lot, but at least an awareness and support for children. But no one was actually interested in helping adults understand themselves better and to improve what they could do. But there was no official way to become a coach at the time because obviously it wasn't recognized in adults. So I trained as a life coach and in the process of that discovered that when adults go through this diagnostic process, it's a whole new understanding of themselves. They really revisit a whole lot about their past and who they are currently, and there's a little bit of a grief process about what their life could have been like if they'd only known. All of this kind of really dramatic journey for them. So I figured counseling skills would probably be really useful in helping with some of that. And as you kind of do with ADHD, I suddenly ended up on a four-year psychotherapy degree. So, so as part of that, 
I began Adventure Within, which was the first company that I started in coaching and began to just put my services out there as someone who is available to work with individuals. And there weren't very many coaches at the time. And so I was gaining practical work at the same time as I was continuing to train in psychotherapy. I'd like to bring in Louise to the conversation. Now, we know you on Women Making Waves as the front woman of Flaming June. Brilliant singer and songwriter. Absolutely love you and your work. Is this sounding a bit familiar to you, some of the things that Rebecca's saying? And, and how, did you be, how did you come to be diagnosed? Similar in a way, I guess, because uh, I have two daughters and my eldest daughter already had a diagnosis for autistic spectrum disorder. But at the age of 16, she was given an additional diagnosis of inattentive ADHD. And I remember going to this appointment with her and the uh, the doctor sort of mentioning ADHD. And I was thinking, absolutely not. She doesn't have ADHD because I had that preconceived idea that ADHD was hyperactive boys. But when he described what inattentive ADHD was and she did the questionnaire, her answers were exactly what my answers would have been. And he showed us the kind of shape this made on this questionnaire. And he was like, that's a classic inattentive ADHD profile and she was diagnosed and treated and the difference it made to her was unbelievable. It took me about two years to go through the process of of getting my diagnosis which I got a year ago and I, I don't really think I've still fully processed that to be honest but yeah so again it was through a family member being given the diagnosis that made me think, oh, hang on a minute, this is sounding awfully familiar. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you reacted when you got your diagnosis, but it sounds to me like you had a a very high suspicion based on the fact that you were just like your doctor and you were coming up with the same answers. Yes, definitely. I don't know, because it's come so late. I still question it sometimes, but I think that's quite normal. But yeah, I think like to get it so late in life, it's quite tricky because I think you've you've already learned some pretty unhelpful coping strategies, which is hard to unlearn the older you are. So, is that what you find, Rebecca? That with, with people coming to you like Louise, is this sounding very familiar to you? Absolutely, it's a bit of a humorous thing that I talk about quite a lot in saying that uh, very often parents will have received uh, information from professionals to say that their child needs a diagnosis. And their response often is, oh, they can't have ADHD because they're exactly like me. (laughs) (laughs) And then about two months to a year later, I get a phone call and the adult says, um, my my child has been diagnosed and I'd really like to investigate some of this about myself. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's, it's always a fascinating journey. And you're absolutely right, Louise, that there is quite a lot of, particularly with women, social acceptance for a lot of what are actually ADHD symptoms. So things like being a bit scatterbrained or a bit emotional or you know, being quite chatty or expressive are all sort of things that can be masked because they're considered socially acceptable for women. Um, mm. So inattentive men and inattentive women are very difficult to diagnose because of this very often. What are the traits then? For someone like me, who's not terribly familiar with ADHD, are there other kind of set of traits? Well, I mean, the standard traditional diagnosis includes three areas. So it's hyperactivity, impulsivity, and distractibility. But usually they're focused on a lot of the challenges that ADHDers face. So when I do uh, an assessment with the people that I work with, 
I asked them a series of questions about their experiences, particularly around things like how they experience time, because the ADHD experience of time is very, very different to what we call neurotypicals, because neurotypicals actually have a felt sense of time passing. So because our brain is wired differently, it's kind of like a, a biological tick. So you can actually feel the distance between now and two weeks from now, which if you think about that, that makes it much easier for being able to do planning and prioritizing because you kind of have a felt sense of that distance. ADHDers do not. We experience time as now or not now. And when it's not now, it's not very urgent and not very important. And when it's now, everything is urgent and important. And so that makes using traditional time management techniques and skills really difficult because the experience is very different. Some of the other things I asked are about things like comfort with risk. And I say comfort with risk because when you talk to quite a lot of adults and you mention risk, the first thing they say is, oh, no, I'm quite risk averse. You know, I'm really careful about things that are very risky. And, and, you know, I'm not an adrenaline junkie and I don't jump out of planes or ride motorcycles or I never took drugs or, you know, anything like that. But what, when I, I kind of adjust it and say, yeah, but, you know, if the risk is calculated, are you quite happy to kind of, you know, <laughs> spur of the moment spontaneously, grab a backpack and, and travel to Europe if that seems like a good idea? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I did that when I was in my early 20s, you know, didn't where I was going, but, you know, it was pretty comfortable. Yeah, comfort with calculated risk. <laughs> um, so there's some really interesting stories that come out of that. We talk about distractibility in terms of environments. So are there some environments that you feel really difficult? You know, it's harder for you to focus like busy and noisy pubs or open plan offices or sometimes, I don't know if you remember, in grocery stores when flat screen televisions first came out mm. and they had them kind of on the high shelves in Tesco when you walked around. I really struggled when they first put those in because it caught my attention so quickly mm. that I, I had to really limit the time I spent inside the grocery store because it was terribly, terribly distracting and overwhelming. One of the biggest ones that's not actually part of the criteria but is really, really key is emotional regulation. That's not only about kind of the ups and downs. So it's really quite common for ADHD to get misdiagnosed as bipolar because of these ups and downs or extremes in mood that ADHDers experience. One of the best stories I heard was from a friend of mine who was talking to a psychiatrist when he was getting his diagnosis. And the psychiatrist said, do you experience depression? And my friend said, oh, yes, there are days when it's very hard and I can't get out of bed and I really struggle to be motivated. And it's just really, really hard. And he said, hmm. He said, then if your friends came over that evening and invited you down to the pub, would you go with them and, and would you be able to? He's like, oh, yeah, we get down. We'd have a great time. Really pick up my mood. It'd be really helpful. The psychiatrist said, you do not have bipolar. <laughs> You're not depressed. This is ADHD. <laughs> and Louise, I can hear you laughing at some of this. How are you reacting to this? Yeah, is this you? Um, <laughs> it is totally me. And I think with um, the songwriting, that's me kind of trying to process often extreme things, well, that they felt extreme to me. Um, it's a way of processing them because I think for me, the ADHD personality is like an all or nothing personality. Like I'll either do something at 200% effort or I won't do it. That kind of middle ground seems to be missing in my brain. But uh, for me, like songwriting has given me 
the ability to process those extreme emotions and put them in a way that I can manage them. Otherwise, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have that outlet to channel that extreme sort of yeah it's not as you said I think when we spoke last time Linda it's not it's not the kind of thing you can talk to over with a coffee it's like it's too uh what's the word intense so for me songwriting's given me that outlet Mm. is this something Rebecca that other people that you've met with ADHD are, are they finding an outlet in things like art and music and writing a way of expressing themselves? There is quite a strong thread of creativity in ADHD and ADHD expression and uh, part of that actually has been evidenced by some of the neuroimaging because when your brain is at rest it does what they call mind wandering. You switch on what's called your default mode network And when you're doing your mind wandering, that's also a place where you have a lot of creativity and imagination and things like that. And in in neurotypicals, when you go to do a task, that will switch off. So they will switch from their default mode network into their task positive networks. ADHDers never quite switch that mind wandering off. It tends to continue sort of happening in the background. So there seems to be a very strong theme of creativity. I've spoken to quite a lot of theatrical professionals, musicians, uh, visual artists, but also performers, very active physical performers who like to go and dance or do improvisational performance, that kind of thing. Have you any questions, Louise, that you want to ask Rebecca? Loads, actually. <laughs> absolutely loads of questions. I feel like I'm quite newly diagnosed and. Uh, and I feel for me I've got to unlearn a lot of things that I've been doing to cope which are probably not that helpful yeah I just it's finding a way to feel that that middle the middle ground really as I say sort of I feel like there's like if you're going from A to B with ideas I feel like I've got the end point and the starting point but the how to get there point doesn't exist (laughs) in my head (laughs) Uh, so it's just like what strategies are there out there for reprogramming your brain, I suppose? Well, the first thing I always tell everyone that I work with is it's really important to become aware of what's happening with your neurobiology. So how important it is that you're interested in what you're doing and what happens when you're not interested because that's when things can feel like there actually requires a lot of extra effort. That doesn't necessarily mean the task is hard, but the the perceived effort of it is extremely difficult. And the feeling of that can actually become a barrier. And so beginning to be aware of not only whether or not you've got that additional help from your interest, but what it is about it that's making it feel really difficult. Because ADHD is a diagnosis of impairment, so it's very contextual. Because that means that in some context, you have enough interest and you're engaged and you can do the task without a problem. But sometimes there's a problem with the interest or the task is particularly challenging and therefore you feel like you can't do it or you're not sure how to be successful at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. yeah, so it's really important to begin to get a sense of the context of which tasks are difficult for you and which ones are particularly challenging. Now there's a common theme to these, which usually is that they're very cognitive So they require things like planning, prioritizing, organization, what uh, a lot of the literature calls executive function tasks, yeah? Mm -hmm. But also things that are what we call maintenance tasks. So things that need to be done exactly the same way 
over and over and over again every time over long periods of time. And these tasks, they might be interesting the first time, but after that, they're not interesting anymore. <laughs> and it's really difficult to keep doing. Um, and we love projects, right? Anything that you can start and you can really intensely focus on, and then you've finished it and you feel accomplished, and yay, fantastic, that's great. Yeah, maintenance tasks yeah. are like death. They are yeah. absolutely... That's so true. <laughs> yeah, really, really difficult to actually continue to do. So being able to identify those and understand that there's neurobiological reason why this is difficult for me to do. It's not a moral failing. It's not because I'm lazy. You know, I mean, nobody wants to do these, right? They're certainly not fun, but it's not like I'm really avoiding them because I'm a horrible person and just don't want to do hard work. That's not true. And that's a big myth about ADHD and particularly how peers and partners and parents and authority figures can interpret the behaviors. It can cause a lot of stigma and can therefore result in ADHDers experiencing a lot of low self-esteem. That's true. And I think it feeds into the kind of um, gender stereotypes and the fact that as a woman, you're supposed to be good at running a house or, you know, <laughs> historically. Well, if you have ADHD, well, in my experience, you're absolutely no good at running a house whatsoever. And as you say, that does feed into your self-esteem. Absolutely. So not only are those maintenance tasks quite difficult to maintain, but ADHDers tend to fall in love with ideas. That mm -hmm. means we have lots and lots of interests. That means we start lots and lots of things. <laughs> we buy all of so the materials true. and all of the equipment and all of the things that we need to do the project. And then we get halfway through and either we don't find it interesting anymore or we run into a problem that's too complicated or we get distracted by something else that's more interesting. And so you end up with piles of these unfinished projects in your space that you feel really guilty about getting rid of because you really should be an adult and you should finish them, but you can engage with them. So it's this kind of catch-22 that not only is it kind of difficult to maintain a space, but we often fill it with things that we really love that then we don't finish. <laughs> this is so true. <laughs> Louise, you've written a song about your diagnosis called Paralyze Me Where I Stand. It's brilliant. Oh, uh, well, yes, exactly. And one talking about um, how time is viewed, I think the, the opening lyric to the chorus is everything is now, the future and the past. And that's, it's, it's, that is honestly how it feels. It feels like... I feel like for my whole life I've been like surfing on the crest of a wave and I've had to keep balancing on this on this wave you know that's that's how it feels and and it gets exhausting a few years of doing that if it's okay we can maybe play that song after this interview mm -hmm. so people can hear it it feels like a very personal piece actually did the knowledge of knowing you'd ADHD trigger these? Like, I mean, this is a really stupid question. Of course they did, didn't they? Well, I, kind of, well, I wrote it actually before I got my official diagnosis. And I've looked back over lyrics that I've written over the years as well. And there's so many of them that you could think, oh, well, that's ADHD. You know, they're littered all over the place. But, but this one, um, you know, I just tried to express that just frenetic kind of everything coming at you and you can't differentiate it or box it up it's all this just coming at you and that overwhelming feeling I just tried to capture it in in a song I think you're going to be very interested to hear this Rebecca this song I would love to it sounds amazing <laughs> now if somebody is listening and they think that they might have ADHD which and I'm now I'm now thinking might be me actually ladies <laughs> how 
how do, <laughs> what do they do? What do they do next, Rebecca? How do they go about getting a diagnosis? Well, I will tell you, Linda, that the prevalence is quite high. So when I teach <laughs> courses, at the moment I'm teaching at the University of Cambridge, and uh, one of the first things I tell them is the prevalence of ADHD, and it is quite high, and it's somewhere between uh, 1 in 20. And so I usually have between 10 and 15 people in that classroom. And so I will say, now I know I'm ADHD, and inevitably someone will come and see me or will start looking funny and say, well, doesn't everybody experience this? No. Diagnosis process is, is unfortunately, there are quite a long waiting list. But the first step is to actually approach your GP and let them know that you are interested in receiving a diagnosis. There are some tools that can help with that. Not all GPs are sometimes aware, uh, particularly in the women's expression, because male and female, whether you're inattentive or not, is actually different. So they're not always familiar with women's expression. So having some assessment tools, which you can find on the internet, or there is some of the tests that you can get online are not definitive, but they can kind of help. But you approach your GP, you let them know that you would like to engage in the diagnostic process, and they will refer you to the adult ADHD clinic for an assessment. Now, you can, if you prefer a speedier or quicker assessment, do it privately. But I would encourage everyone who is after a diagnosis to do the two processes simultaneously, because you can get caught out by having a private diagnosis not be recognized by a GP and therefore not be able to get treatment on the NHS. It sounded like what you went through, Louise, because you said it took a long time. I initially went through the NHS and they said to me, which I found a little bit ridiculous, but they said, I have all the traits of ADHD, but they're not going to give me a diagnosis because they didn't know me when I was a child. This is the adult ADHD team. (laughs) So in the end, I did have to go privately, unfortunately, uh, because I knew in myself, I knew what the answer was. But for some reason, I think for my self-esteem, I wanted an official diagnosis. But Mm -hmm. I would encourage anyone who is seeking a diagnosis, you don't have to have a diagnosis to join a support group or speak to people online. I mean, TikTok has just exploded. If you're, if you're interested in social media, apparently there's a, a huge community on TikTok talking about experiences. Facebook has several ADHD communities that you can join. So there's quite a lot on social media and plenty of people are quite happy to ask questions or just share their experiences. So you should be able to find some things while you're going through this process. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, Rebecca, how would they go about doing that? So I have my website, which is rebeccachamp.co.uk. And we also do run a support group in Cambridge once a month, which is currently because of COVID uh, running online. So if you're interested in joining that and coming to speak to us, if you just send an email, there's a form on the website. Because I'm doing my PhD, I have a reduced number of clients that I'm taking on. However, I have started a Patreon. And on that Patreon, you can sign up. It's a very, very minimal monthly fee. But I am posting there with videos. I'm also adding worksheets. And I do a monthly live question and answer session. So those are the best ways to get a hold of me at the moment. Oh, fantastic. And Louise, we're about to play Paralyze Me Where I Stand. But Mm -hmm. how can people find out more about what you do as a musician? You can find me online at flaminggenemusic.com or on all the social media networks at Flaming June UK. 
This has been absolutely fascinating and quite honestly, I could go on chatting for hours about this. Thank you very much, Rebecca Champ and Louise Etock. There's a high-speed train and it's coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't tell my story There's a high-speed train, it's coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't heed the warning There's a heart on fire, coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't tell my story There's a heart on fire Everything is now, the future and the past The dream out loud, the self-doubt comes fast To paralyze me where I stand Paralyze me where I stand Everything is now, the future and the past The dream out loud, the self-doubt comes fast To paralyze me where I stand Paralyze me where I stand That's all we've got time for today. We'd like to thank our guests Rebecca Champ, Louise Etock and Rebecca Maddox. If you know of a woman we should be talking to, please let us know. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. Cause everything is now, the future and the past, the dream out loud, the self-doubt comes for.